I could. I tried so hard. I fought the good hard fight of vulnerability and uh, expression and just like being a sucker for love for so fucking long. I did what I, I did it. I tried. I tried. You just don't want me to try, but it's okay. Um, next week I'll be taking accountability. This week was um, publicly humiliating you, and next week will be me, you know, owning up to giving people too much power. Maybe we'll explore power next week and how you can control what you got. Um, thank you guys so much for tuning in. That last track was a beautiful one. The music video is super trippy too. Uh, Conan Moxon faking jazz together. Um, at some point we did, oh wait, yeah, I already told you that, uh, Sam Cooke, change is gonna come, oh, Rodriguez, I'll think of you, that is a super good one, uh, it was, yeah, awesome, so, thanks for listening, it's basically my, my electronic diary, and I really hope that you enjoyed it, and I hope you tune in next week. And we're going to have Heartbreak Volume, Heartbreak Radio Volume 2 sometime. I don't know. I don't think I can handle this again. I'm like, got to go cry right now. So I might need to take a breather on that. But um, just be good to each other. Be good to your neighbors. Be real. Keep it real forever. (coughs) And uh, don't go jump off a bridge. If you do, give me a call. We'll do it together. All right. I love you guys. insomnia, anxiety, stress, chronic brain, depression, nausea, and can induce euphoria and stimulate appetite. I'm going to guess waffles. <laughs> that is incorrect. <laughs> Actually, Alex, the food I'm talking about are cannabis-based medicinal extracts. Cannabis-based medicinal extracts? That sounds like you're smoking drugs, Ed. No, baby. There are smokeless, safe, and less expensive alternative to smoking. But can I use it to sleep? Yes, baby! Good! Because I'm so excited by this that I may never sleep again! And it sounds like you, Alex, may want to check out the number 4altacalifornia.com. That's 4altacalifornia.com for a non-addictive, pharmaceutical-free alternative to smoking medical marijuana. Check them out today at number 4altacalifornia.com. Join us every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. for Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse here on Mutiny Radio. I'm your host, Pam Benjamin, bringing you the best of San Francisco's underground comedy scene here every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. It's only $2. You can bring your own beer and listen to comedy here every Friday, 8 to 10 p.m., 21st in Florida. It's mutinyradio.fm.
The House of Pride radio show, LGBT radio for everyone. Funky interviews, funky beats, talking drag queens, and much, much more. It's LGBT radio for everyone. Listen live every Wednesday, 6 to 8 p.m. House of Pride Radio, LGBT radio for everyone. Celebrating the considerable contributions of the LGBT community in San Francisco and beyond. Every Wednesday, 6 to 8 p.m. Listen here for hot new local beats by LGBT artists and listen to live interviews. Tune in. Turn on every Wednesday, 6 to 8 p.m. House of Pride Radio with drag queen personalities, Tweeka Turner and Pearl T. Are you sick of reading the news? Do you even bother to read the news anymore? Do you need someone to read it to you because it's just so disgusting and depressing? If so, then the Weekly Review is the show for you. Join Roman Reimer as Roman reads the news, whether it be LGBTQ issues, cannabis legalization, prison abolition, police brutality, or many other issues that sometimes the media just doesn't feel the need to cover. Listen in, Fridays at noon, Mutiny Radio. Roman's also joined by activists, community organizers, artists, and many other great folks working to make the world a better place. Have no fear. The news is here. And if you feel like yelling about it, well then Roman will be yelling with you. The Weekly Review, Fridays at noon on Mutiny Radio. Hello, comrades. This is your comrade, Zach Wiseman, host of government-sponsored program, Communist Folding Chairs, mandated by the Kremlin to occur every Monday, 2 to 4 p.m., broadcast by our comrades at mutinyradio.fm. Sit, relax, listen to my comrades in stand-up comedy march honorably through their cold, balanced sets, and other comrades make fun of them. Because in Mother Russia, if you can't laugh about starving for turnip and beet, and attention, you are a capitalist pig, and the KB, KGB will visit you shortly. Every Monday, 2 to 4 p.m. Miren, miren! Es un pájaro? Es un avión? No! Es un chimán! Looking to invest in the future of your community? MutinyRadio.fm and the Boys and Girls Club Mission Clubhouse needs your help. Please donate to keep the Radio Clash Show Institute right now alive on the air every Thursday from 4.50 to 5.50 p.m. Donations are tax deductible. Donate online at www.mutinyradio.fm or just stop by the station at 21st Street and Florida. That's 2781 21st Street and throw some cash in the big glass jar. Stop by to experience live audience friendly shows every day of the week and know that you're supporting the future of the mission by keeping free speech alive for all ages. This PSA is brought to you by your friends and community partners at muniradio.fm. Hi, I'm Chuck Weiss. If you're an old baby boomer like me, pain is probably something you've learned to live with by now. 
Yes, there are drugs on the market that help, but they come with side effects and shouldn't be used for extended periods of time. But fortunately, there is an effective natural pain reliever available in this state, medical cannabis. Let me tell you about Alta California Botanicals. They're a manufacturer of fine cannabis tinctures. Now you can take your medication in liquid form, much more discreet than pulling out a pipe and lighting up. Alta California Botanicals offers five different formulations, each one addressing a specific medical concern. There are two that are designed for pain, one to be swallowed, of course, and a new one for external use only. I'm going to have to try that one myself on my arthritic fingers. There's a tincture for stress and one for anxiety. They'll certainly keep you mellow. And there's even one for people who suffer from MS. The cannabis tinctures from Alta California Botanicals come in one half ounce bottles. Each batch is laboratory tested and certified free of pesticides and mold. In other words, completely natural and unadulterated. Alta California Botanicals doesn't sell directly to the public, of course, but if you visit their website at Alta, A-L-T-A, CaliforniaBotanicals.com and enter your zip code, they'll give you a list of dispensaries near you that keep their tinctures in stock. Now here's a tip for the holiday season. Keep a couple of extra bottles of the stress formula handy. It'll help maintain your cool amongst all that shopping madness. I'm Chuck Weiss for AltaCaliforniaBotanicals.com. Do you have a great idea for a product or service but don't know where to start? Are you looking to expand your current business? Women's Initiative of San Francisco began its business management training program for low-income, high-potential women in 1988. To attend a free orientation on how you can achieve your dream of starting your own business, or for more information, please contact 415-641-3460 or visit womensinitiative.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. Planned Parenthood is a trusted healthcare provider, an informed educator, a passionate advocate, and a global partner helping similar organizations around the world. Planned Parenthood delivers vital reproductive health care, sex education, and information to millions of women, men, and young people worldwide. For nearly 100 years, Planned Parenthood has promoted a common-sense approach to women's health and well-being based on respect for each individual's rights to make informed, independent decisions about health, sex, and family planning. Please visit PlannedParenthood.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. The Berkeley Free Clinic was founded in 1969 as a street medicine clinic, but quickly found a permanent home in the Berkeley community. It has become an icon in the area and has served countless thousands in a variety of ways during its 45-year history. Fees have never been charged for any services, materials, medications, or supplies provided at the Berkeley Free Clinic. Income has been generated solely via individual or organizational donations and government programs. To volunteer your time or to make a donation or for more information, visit berkeleyfreeclinic.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. 
Meals on Wheels is dedicated to fostering independent living for San Francisco seniors by providing hot, nutritious meals delivered to their homes. They're committed to fostering independent living for as long as possible. For more information, please call Meals on Wheels at 415-920-1111. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. MutinyRadio.fm. It's time for the weekly review. Without Roman. I'm your guest host today, Pam Benjamin. We're going to bring you the news, but before we do that, because it's so terribly depressing, let's listen to some good music. This is The Police. Can't start losing you. you're saying sting is that you can't stand losing you well we can barely stand losing roman reimer for the day this is the weekly review i'm subbing for him this is pam benjamin hanging out with you guys i played a little police today also going to play some nwa why because i'm wearing roman's favorite t-shirt 
it's a picture of the police, uh, not the police with guns that we know from the brutality on the streets, but the police that I just played uh, with Sting and Stuart Copeland and that other guy. And I'm wearing a shirt with their faces on it, and it says, fuck NWA. So it's very funny. I had a woman today walk by me while I was getting on the bus, and she pointed and laughed, and I knew that she had a sense of humor, and that made me feel good about the world. Uh, what's not going to make us feel good about the world is some of the news that's out today about police brutality and about what's happening right now uh, in San Francisco and around the world. Scary stuff, guys. Scary stuff. But that's why the news is depressing. So sometimes we play music here on the Weekly Review. Uh, and again, we're going to miss a Roman Reimer, but we've got some, we've got some great news. Uh, I also, not great news, terrible news but everyone should be informed. Uh, I also found this CD that was wrapped up. It's from 1996. It's a band called Reagan's Polyp. It's an uh, album called Cream Gun. And really great names of songs. Uh, we're going to listen to some of them throughout the, the show today. Uh, the first one is You Smell Bad. I'm like, I'm, I'm in. You're called Reagan's Polyp, and... Uh, and your first song is You Smell Bad. So uh, let's get to that special stuff. We're also going to get to some NWA today. Uh, more police, obviously. And then some stories about police brutality here on the Weekly Review.
I love it when uh, music from 1996 seems totally new and relevant right now. Uh, that was some fun uh, punk-like, thrashy, post-rock. 96, man, that's when I graduated from college. I'm Pam Benjamin, your guest host today on The Weekly Review with Roman, who cannot be with us today, so I'm trying to do my best to channel my inner Roman and come up with cool, trippy music. Uh, some of the other titles on this stuff, Chocolate Concussion, oh yeah, right? Uh, Pensthalea, Queen of the Amazons, 14 Lashes from French Guiana, yeah, Eat You Blood Demon, I mean, it's like a poem on the back of there on the back of their CD that was not open. This is like a vintage article. It was wrapped in plastic, just sitting on the shelf like Laura Palmer, right? Reagan's Polyp. We're going to be listening to them throughout the show. Also doing some news. This is something that Roman shared yesterday on the Weekly Review uh, Facebook page from Dark Matter. On this Spirit Day, let us remember, one, homophobia and transphobia do transphobia do not exist in isolation from racism and capitalism homophobia and transphobia are often responses to histories and of continued acts of colonial and economic violence 
We will never end homophobia and transphobia unless we end capitalism and racism. It's not enough to do LGBT sensitivity trainings. People need racial and economic justice. All right, I'm believing in number one. Number two, homophobia is often weaponized to further demonize black, indigenous, and people of color. We will never end homophobic and transphobic violence until we recognize that gender and sexual oppression is not unique to a particular culture, body, or region. It is a pervasive, it is pervasive, and maps differently across all cultures and peoples. People of color are not more homophobic than white people. All right. Every, it's, everyone's homophobic. Uh, not everybody. We're learning to become more sensitive to all people and that people are, we are all human. Number three, homophobia and transphobia are systems of oppression, not just attitudes and individual acts of violence. Our culture creates the idea of the bully to rescue itself from its own complicity in structural violence. The truth is that bullies are victims of the same systems of power. Bullies are often responding from very real trauma, loss, violence, and pain under other violent regimes of power and state control. Hurt people hurt people. Number four, the prison industrial complex feeds into these racist ideas. We are taught that if we punish and incarcerate bullies and perpetrators, we will end violence. This couldn't be more far from the truth. All it does is address the symptoms and not the root causes. If we are really committed to ending a culture of hate, we cannot respond to violence with more violence. We need to build a culture of empathy, healing, and transformative justice. Amen. Preach a dark matter. Five, the rhetoric to stop LGBT bullying has and continues to contribute to the mass criminalization and incarceration of black, indigenous, and people of color. Laws and policies may sound effective on the books, but they disproportionately are exercised on people of color. Zero-tolerance policies around homophobia in schools have targeted black and brown youth and contributed to the high school prison pipeline. Hate crimes, hate crime legislation has further criminalized low-income communities of color and funneled them into prisons. Six, most LGBTQ youth are not white and are not wealthy. Their biggest bullies are not mean boys in school. Rather, they are our school's administration. Their biggest threat is not men on the corner of the street. It is the police. The state continues to murder, profile, stop and frisk, rape, abuse, criminalize, deport, and lock up LGBTQ youth of every color every day. Rest in power, Jesse Hernandez. Seven, our bullies learn their strategies of control, intimidation, and violence from the state. The prison and legal system gives them a blueprint of what justice, I mean what murder, torture, and, dis, uh, and disposability looks like. Eight, when LGBTQ youth of color respond to defend themselves from violence, they are often the ones who get blamed for inciting violence and are criminalized for their self-defense. Think of the case of Cece McDonald, a black trans woman who was physically attacked by racists on the street and was thrown into jail. Cece has since been freed, but so many are still behind bars. 9. The only guaranteed housing the state offers to LGBTQ youth of color is the prison system. 10. LGBTQ youth do not need to be saved. 
They do not need our lip service. They need jobs, health care, stable housing, and respect to determine their own pathways to wellness and security. Wow. Speaking the truth. Absolutely. Uh, well, here we go. We're going to do um, a little NWA, a little straight out of Compton. Here we go. little gangster rap for you guys. You are now about to witness the strength of street knowledge. coming right out of Compton is a brother that'll smother your mother and make your sister think I love her dangerous motherfucker racing hell and if I ever get caught I make bail see I don't give a fuck that's the problem I see a motherfucking cop I don't dodge him but I'm smart lay low free for a while and when I see the park pass I smile to me it's kind of funny the attitude show a nigga driving but don't know where the fuck he going just rolling looking for the one they call Over a hesitation, and hear the scream of the one who got the 
Oh, police brutality. That's the way it goes in the city of everywhere now. Yay. Um, I'm being facetious, obviously. Uh, Hey, here's an article for you guys from the Huffington Post. Why did a cop shoot Robert Chambers in the head? Police say the Georgia teen was armed and dangerous. His family and their lawyers smell a cover-up. Uh... Robert James, uh, Robert Chambers, there's a picture of him and it's uh, just of his legs and it says um, his body lies on the ground after he was shot and killed by a police officer. Oh. It felt about as cold as it can get in Warner Robins, Georgia in the early morning hours of Janu- January 24th, 2011. Robert Chambers, 19, saw his breath as he walked along the dirt path that traced the edge of a wooden area near Fagan Mill Middle School. Maybe he thought about girls. Everyone knew Chambers as a ladies' man who carried his skinny 5-foot-8-inch frame with considerable swagger. Just the day before, Chambers had stood in a driveway with his two neighborhood girls flirting and laughing. Maybe he thought about his future. He had dreams of being a contractor one day and building a community center for teens who needed a place to go and stay out of trouble. Like many young men his age in that part of the state, Chambers had dropped out of high school but was working to get his GED. In the meantime, he just wanted a job. That morning, just as he did on many mornings, Chambers made the 50-minute walk from his mother's home to the five-star Nissan dealership, where he'd often ask for work detailing cars. He also expected a call that day about a job at a local grocery store. Maybe his thoughts turned to his family. His mother, whom he adored, was raising Chambers and his younger brother Roderick and sister Katrina on her own, working two jobs to provide for the kids. Maybe he thought about his siblings, who always went to him for guidance, or his uncle, who had always been a father figure. But there's no way Chambers thought about what cops say he thought about that morning, his friends and family attest. Chambers was non-confrontational. He always avoided violence. He never really even got into trouble, for God's sake. And in a town where police arrests twice as many black as whites, Chambers, an African-American, had no criminal history. Yet later that morning, his mother, Sharice Wells, heard a knock at the door. A police officer stood in the doorway along with the coroner. Just a few minutes away from Wells' home, her son's body lay in the dirt, blood pooling from his head. Next to him was a gun which a Houston County officer said Chambers had dropped before the officer fatally shot him. Aside from the cop, who was unhurt, no one saw what happened. Police said Chambers had burglarized a nearby home, stolen a gun, and put a cop's life in jeopardy. But maybe he didn't. Last month, lawyers for Chambers, the Chambers family, filed a damning new court papers alleging that the Houston County Police planted evidence on Chambers' body and in the crime scene. Those court papers, including hundreds of documents and evidence, have been reviewed by the Huffington Post. Here's what police say happened. 
It was the second time that month that someone had broken into the home of Robert Brown that Robert Brown shared with his son, Antonius White. On January 12, 2011, a thief had made off with three guns and a PlayStation 3. So when Brown, 63, came home on January 24th to see his front door pried open, he knew it had happened again. He called the police. Houston County Deputy Eugene Parker arrived at the residence around 8.40 a.m. Brown told Parker he'd heard someone run out the back door, but he did not get a look at the suspect. Nearby, 51-year-old Deputy, St Deputy Stephen Glidden was doing what he usually did for the department, serving civil papers to people's houses. Prior to joining the Houston County Sheriff's Department, he'd worked as a cop down in Florida, and before that, he'd served in the Army for six years in the 80s. During his 10 years in Warner Robins, he'd never fired his gun in the line of duty. When he heard the call on the radio about a nearby burglary, Glidden asked his supervisors for the green light to assist Parker. He got it. Thirty minutes later, a short three-minute walk from Brown's house, Glidden searched a wooded area near Fagan, near Fagan Middle School. Fagan Mill Middle School. He just received a call. Parker told him a gun may have been taken from the house. Glidden turned a corner on the dirt path and saw a black teen walking alone. In a later deposition, he said Chambers had an oh crap look on his face. Glidden estimates the kid was 14 or 15 years old. Glidden told Chambers to remove his hands from his pockets. What's going on? Why? Chambers asked. In his deposition, Glidden described how he repeated his command, but Chambers didn't listen. Instead, he kept walking toward Glidden until the two were within a couple feet of one another. Chambers stepped to the right as if to pass, his hands finally leaving his pockets. But out of the corner of his eye, Glidden saw something, the butt of a black semi-automatic pistol in Chambers' left pocket. Glidden says he lunged after the weapon with his right hand, and a struggle ensued. When Glidden felt Chambers reaching for his service weapon, Glidden shot him with a taser, but the electric rods couldn't pierce through when Chambers' winter jacket. A camera on the taser began recording, but it got knocked out of Glidden's hand and didn't capture much. According to Glidden, he still managed to get Chambers to the ground. Seconds later, the teen got up, flinging his jacket down. The video recorded Glidden yelling for Chambers to get down. At some point, the gun, the gun Chambers had in his left jacket pocket fell onto the ground, but Glidden didn't realize that. Chambers started to run away. Chambers ran toward a residential neighborhood. The teen still had a gun, Glidden thought, as he lifted the weapon and fired. A single round struck Chambers in the back left side of the head. He stiffened and fell to the ground, Glidden later explained. A gross miscarriage of justice. Afterward, the police didn't offer much explanation to Chambers' mother, Sharice Wells. We believe that Robert was in a prior crime that led to the shooting and killing in his death. She recalled an officer telling her at her home the day her son died. That was it. That's all the details they gave me. Wells said that before leaving her house, the officer turned around and said in passing, Oh, and this is going to be on the news. Sure enough, Wells heard her son's name repeated on the news the following day. From the same bulletin, she learned who killed, she learned who killed him, a cop. The newscaster said Chambers had robbed a house and stolen a gun, but Wells didn't believe it. It didn't add up. 
In 2013, she hired a local lawyer and filed a wrongful death suit in federal court against Glidden and the Houston County Sheriff's Department. The lawsuit dragged on for two years until this past August when a judge tossed the case out of court. Glidden's use of deadly force, the judge ruled, was reasonable under the circumstances and did not violate clearly established law. A cop can legally shoot a fleeing suspect if he or she reasonably believes the person is a danger to the officer or other people. Chambers' family left crestfallen. The police version of events would be the only one to survive in public record, and no trial meant that the family would always feel in the dark. The family had lost faith in their lawyer, so Chris Wells, Chambers' uncle, went online to see who had represented the family of Eric Garner, a black father of six whose death from a police chokehold in New York grabbed national headlines and spurred massive protests. The lawyer's name was Jonathan Moore, and the family decided to contact him. Was it a Hail Mary? Who knew if a big fancy New York law firm would take on a four-year-old case in Georgia? Moore and his partner, Luna Druby, both attorneys at Bedlock, Levine, and Hoffman, agreed to look at Chambers' death. They made no guarantees they'd take on the case. Over the next month, the pair spent nights and weekends poring over documents, Druby said. Once we started gathering stuff, our eyes, we couldn't believe it, she said. There were fingerprints that were never analyzed, a gun that didn't match up to reports, and another possible suspect in the burglary, a mother among other inconsistencies. On September 2nd, the lawyers filed papers in court. The federal judge, they wrote, needed to reverse his previous decision. Anything else would be a gross miscarriage of justice. The Houston Sheriff's Department declined a commentary for this story. Is this a gun? There's a picture of it's uh, the gun that cops say they recovered from the scene of Chambers' death. The family's lawyers say this is not the same gun model that White and Brown said was stolen from their house. Druby and Moore, the new lawyers on the case, say there are several inconsistencies surrounding the scene of the shooting. First, photographs from the woods show a blue steel Taurus PT-145 Millennium Pro .45 caliber pistol on the ground. But a police report says that White told the police a different gun model was in the house that morning, a black Taurus model PT-145.45 caliber. The first gun was a model manufactured in 2007. The second was manufactured between 2002 and 2003. Druby and Moore allege the police planted another weapon at the scene. The lawyers filed court papers earlier this month that contend it is now certain that the gun found at the location where Mr. Chambers was killed is not the same gun owned by Antonius White. The Houston County Sheriff's Department, in a court filing this week, blasted Druby and Moore for peddling a conspiracy theory. The department pointed to another police report which said that White had in fact reported a Millennium Pro missing from the house but it was the same brand, model, and type of handgun found at the, at the scene. Another inconsistency. At 10.06 a.m., the morning of Chambers' death, Special Agent Lee Weathersby of Georgia Bureau of Investigations, which investigates police-involved shootings in the state, took a time-stamped photo of the scene. It shows the gun Chambers allegedly stole, clearly visible on the ground. 
Yet just 20 minutes after the first photo was shot, another photo was taken at 1026 by a sheriff's department investigator that shows the same gun covered in leaves. Whoa. This is direct evidence that officers at the scene of the murder tampered with the evidence and, quite likely, fabricated such evidence, Druby and Moore claim in a court filing. The Sheriff's Department, in its response to the filing, says it's likely that the timestamps are incorrect and that the photo showing the gun covered in leaves was taken first. The leaves were then removed, the department argues in court papers, so officers could verify what type of gun it was. What's more, it's unclear what happened to the gun. Contrary to a police account that morning, Chris Wells, Chambers' uncle, said in a sworn affidavit in the lawsuit that Antonius White, whose house was broken in him, into, told him that neither White nor his father entered the house when cops were investigating the burglary and therefore never saw whether the weapon was actually missing. Wells' affidavit also says that according to White, Police still have the gun and have refused to return it, citing pending litigation. White declined to comment for this story, and Brown could not be reached. This is direct evidence that officers at the scene of the murder tampered with the evidence and, quite likely, fabricated such evidence. By his own admission, Glidden says he didn't see a gun on Chambers as he ran. Glidden also didn't give Chambers a warning that he would shoot if the teen didn't stop fleeing. The cop said he needed to shoot because he thought Chambers was armed, but he saw the butt of the pistol in the teen's left pocket and didn't realize it had fallen during the struggle. But the lawyers point out a few questions. Why would Glidden let Chambers pass so close to him, a matter of inches according to his testimony, if he thought the teen might be armed? Why not draw his gun then? And why would Chambers, who his mother said was right-handed, keep the gun in his left pocket where he'd need his left hand to access it? As the Sheriff's Department pointed out in its court filing this week, there is evidence tying Chambers to the burglary that day. Thumb drives and a TV remote stolen from the house were found on or near his body. So easily plantable. Ugh. But Chambers' family's lawyers maintain that these two could have been planted. Plus, they argue, a laptop stolen from the house that morning was never recovered. If Chambers committed the burglary, where is the laptop? In court papers, the family contends that Glidden knew Chambers was unarmed when he shot him, and his fellow police officers have conspired to cover up the true circumstances of this young man's death. Glidden was advised by his lawyer not to talk to Huffington Post for this story. Dusting for fingerprints. Hours after Chambers' death, back at the burglared house, GBI Special Agent Jason Shudell took a photograph of a sharp, flat-screen television. It had been moved to the middle of the living room during the burglary. Smudges of fingerprints covered the screen. Shudell lifted the fingerprints from the TV onto 3x5-inch index cards. He did the same with suspected prints on the front door screen door of the house, which had been pried open during the burglary. The next day, Weathersby, the GBI agent, watched as a medical examiner, took ink fingerprints impressions from Chambers' dead body. Oh, that's sad. It's the dead fingerprints of this boy. But these two sets of fingerprints were never analyzed for a match. Nothing, it seems, could link Chambers more directly to the house than his own fingerprints. Yet investigators appear to have never taken this step. Curious, right? Drewby, the lawyer, told Huffington Post. 
The day after the Shadell lifted the fingerprints from the TV and the screen door, he handed the prints over to Houston County Sheriff's Department on a request under Georgia's open record acts revealed. The very fact that GBI handed those document records back to the Houston Sheriff's Department when they're supposed to be an investigative agency that's separate from the Houston County Sheriff's Office is entirely questionable, Droby says. They're supposed to be doing this analysis completely independently, so why would they then share that information with the Houston County Sheriff's Department? GBI special agent in charge, Lisa Harris, who runs the Bureau's open record requests, told Huffington Post that GBI handed only the investigation into Chambers' death, not the investigation into the burglary. The agency handed the prints over because they weren't trying to figure out who broke into the house, she said. Because they already knew. Oh, but they didn't know. The Sheriff's Department insisted to Huffington Post that GBI had matched Chambers' prints to those taken from the TV in the front door. But Harris said that isn't the case. The Sheriff's Office provided HuffPost with scanned copies of the fingerprints lifted from the burglar alert house. But the copies were not of high enough quality to conduct an independent analysis, a forensic expert said. The department did not respond to repeated requests for higher quality copies. The crime scene. In the heat of battle, as Glidden describes in his police report, Chambers began to sprint away after the two fell to the ground. The teen rounded a right corner and took off down a dirt path. Glidden, allegedly still on his knees, raised his glock and fired. Despite the distance the two had from each other and a tree that would have at least partially been blocking Glidden's view, the officer still managed to strike the teen on the back left side of his head with just a single shot. A police sketch created by GBI shows the location of Chambers' body, Exhibit 7, near Exhibit 2, where Glidden said he looked, he took his shot, and the teen in the back of the left side of the head. The family's lawyers have noted that it's odd that Chambers would be hit in the left side when his right side was the one more likely facing the officer. The bullet casing, Exhibit 9, was found 30 feet from where Glidden said he fired, Droop said. Oh... The lawyer, is anybody else sad about this? Roman, if you're out there listening, I know that you're cringing. You're saying this gross misjustice. We're trying to take it back over four years, but the huge cover-up from cops to cops, just police brutality. All of Why? Why does a 14-year-old boy have to die? The lawyers found this account problematic. How could the bullet have gone into the left side of Chambers' head if Glidden was facing Chambers' right side? More troubling, Glidden's bullet case sat more than 30 feet from where he said he shot Chambers, attorney said. Druby believes Glidden took his shot at Chambers from much closer than he described. The crime scene photos of Chambers' bodies add to Druby's skepticism. In one photo, a trail of blood and brain matter stains the dirt several inches above Chambers' head. The photos also show the teen's shirt and sweater lifted up, exposing his bare back. Chambers, who died instantly, can be seen with glass, grass clippings on only the right side of his arm. Druby said this evidence that the teen's body was dragged after his death. She said that Glidden likely stopped dragging the teen when he noticed the trail of blood and drag marks in the dirt in the path he created. <sighs> uh, I, there's a warning graphic photo click to reveal. I'm not going to click it because I don't want it. I don't want it. I can't do it. I don't want to cry. We're going to need some music after this, you guys. The other suspect. 
As units began to arrive on the scene of the burglary, two sheriff's deputies went to check on possible suspects that lived in the area. That suspect is mentioned only once in more than a dozen police reports, and the deputies ultimately said they could not find him. Lawyers for the Chambers family said this man could be their burglar. <laughs> this man in his 20s is not being named because he has not been charged with his crime. But in a 2013 Facebook post, he apologized to those he robbed in the past. Quote, Okay, if I have robbed you or we have beef for another reason, it is over with as of tonight. I'm done with the BS and I'm sending out a worldwide apology, the post reads. This is one post of many. Quote, if you done crossed so many people, you got the whole town hating on you. Unquote, a Facebook friend of the, the man posted on his page. Quote, I ain't never in my life think someone would cross me the way you did. Oh, oh, yeah, it looks like the body was dragged. You can clearly see the body was totally dragged. I clicked on the, I clicked on the photo anyways, and I wish I wouldn't have. <sighs> Brain matter, just fly. You can see the body's been dragged. You guys, you go look, I don't look at the picture. It's too di difficult, but the body was clearly dragged. Wow. According to a police report obtained by HuffPost, cops believe that whoever robbed the house on January 24th, the day Chambers was killed, was also responsible for the January 12th break-in. But Chambers wasn't even in Warner Robins on January 12th. He was an hour away at his sister's in Eastman. On January 12, 2011, Robert was staying with me in Eastman, Georgia, Chambers' sister said in an affidavit in the wrongful death lawsuit. I know that because he had just broken up with his girlfriend. He came to stay with me for two weeks to recover. Druby, the lawyer, pointed out that the possible suspect, whom authorities attempted to check out in connection with the break-in, had been released from jail on January 6, 2011, just six days before the first burglary. He had been arrested at least a dozen other times and at the time lived just a 30-minute walk from the Browns, not including potential shortcuts. By the time Chambers was killed, this other suspect may have already been comfortably home, Druby said. Druby said the police should have checked the possible suspect's fingerprints against those taken from the scene of the burglary. Any reasonable, competent police officer investigating these crimes would have checked in to determine if the fingerprints found at the scene of the burglary, in fact, matched his prints, the lawsuit alleges. The possible suspect was not available for comment. He is back in custody of the Houston County Sheriff's Department for theft charges. I just want his name cleared. As a single parent, Wells said she relied on her three children to take care of her and each other. I raised them with a bond. We have a bond, she said, and that's all been stripped. All that's been taken away from me. Now there are no more gatherings, no more celebrations, no more laughing with her son. Wells' daughter moved to Florida, unable to live in the same town where her brother was killed. Chambers said from a family of, Chambers came from a family of nurses that taught him to show respect to everyone, his uncle Chris Wells said. Robert didn't make enemies, his uncle said. If there was an opportunity for there to be an altercation or anything aggressive, he was the type of person to walk away. He never wanted to be in trouble for anything. 
He didn't like to get in trouble or for people to fuss at him about things he'd done wrong, Charisse Wells said. He was very mannerable. It was always yes sir, no sir with him. After Glidden fired his taser at Chambers, the weapon began recording a video in their final encounter. In the 20-second clip, the officer can be heard screaming at Chambers to get on the ground. I'm on the ground, sir, Chambers said, remaining polite. Oh, my God, we're going to listen to the tasers the last moment. Oh, my God, this is the taser recording, you guys. <gasps> Here it goes. I hope there is no commercial first. Get on the ground, man, man. Get on the ground. I'm on the ground. Everybody. I'm not going to pay you again. Oh my God. That's like a horror movie. I'm on the ground, sir. Oh God, this is giving me chills. This is horrible. Hold on for a second. I'm totally channeling Roman right now. I I'm not, I, I'm, this is really, really, really scary and terrible news. And, and the, the, this mis, these kinds of misjustices are carried out constantly, uh, is, uh, abhorrent. Um, the footage doesn't offer a clear explanation of what happened. Drubian Moore says it shows Chambers sprinting away after being forced to the ground. Seconds later, a single gunshot rings out. Sharice Wells knows her son isn't coming back. All she can ask for now is his name be cleared. His character was ruined, she said. They described a totally different child from what he was, and they make him seem like he was this terrible thug kid. I just want his name cleared for who he was. In the meantime, Wells said she finds peace in believing that Officer Glidden is just, as, is a, is just a flawed man. Did this police officer just wake up saying, I feel like killing someone today? No, I don't feel like that, she said. I hope and pray that he's not this angry, vicious person that just says, I got the right to kill. Uh, let's listen to this video um, that Cherise Wells on the killing of her son. You know, the saddest part about it is that the news media told me the police officer shot my son. They didn't want to say who. They didn't want to say what the prior crime consisted of. As that police officer was closing my door that day, he was like, oh, and besides, it's going to be on the news. And after he closed my door that day, my phone started ringing from friends and family saying, Cherise, tell me this ain't true. And I'm like, how do y'all know? And it was like, the news. So that's how I found out a lot of my information. You know, they describe a totally different child from what he was, you know what I'm saying? And they make him seem like he's this terrible thug kid, you know, that mama is greedy and all this kind of stuff at the end of the day, Sebastian. I'd rather have my, my son back than all the money in the world. Money ain't nothing, Sebastian. I, I have to work now until I'm 67. So I'm going to still work whether I have money or not. I'm comfortable. I pay all my bills. You know what I'm saying? If the, I feel in my heart and I want to believe 
how I find peace with the whole situation is that did this police officer just wake up to say I'm finna go kill somebody today? No, I don't feel like that. You know what I'm saying? I, I hope and I prayed about the whole situation that he's not this angry, vicious person that just says, I'm, you know, I got the right to kill and stuff. But at the end of the day, I want closure, but I want closure with who Robert was, of him, not of what they say he is. I want closure for justice of my son, but for everybody that felt like this whole situation was right to just do this right here. I want closure for that. I want justice for that because I want, at the end of the day, everybody to be treated equally, no matter what color you are, no matter what race, because at the end of the day, when our skin is cut, we all bleed blood, just different types. Wow. Sheree swells on the killing of her son, Robert. It's so hardcore, you guys. Uh, in the years since Chambers' death, national attention has been focused on the killing of black men by law enforcement officers. There was Eric Garner in Staten Island, Walter Scott in Charleston, South Carolina, and Freddie Gray in Baltimore. According to The Guardian's The Counted Project, which tracks police-involved death, deaths, over 900 people, a disproportionate percentage of whom were black, have been killed by police this year in the United States. Among the numerous pro-gun and pro-cop memes Glidden has posted to his Facebook wall over the past four years since killing Chambers, there is a picture of a badge. badge. Officer Wilson, I stand by you. 8914, um, eight, the badge reveals. Wilson, a white officer in Ferguson, Missouri, shot and killed an 18-year-old black teen named Michael Brown on August 9, 2014. Brown's death sparked national protests and was a catalyst for the Black Lives Matter movement. The day Chambers died, his family gathered at Sharice Wells' house to mourn. The telephone rang and Chris Wells answered. A week earlier, a friend had set Chambers up with an interview at a Kroger grocery store. He was calling to say he got the job. <sighs> Guys, I have to play some music. This so sucks. I'm just killing innocent people. I'm sorry. I'm totally channeling Roman right now. Uh, here's some more NWA. <laughs> Sing this song 
drop science. Well, I'm dropping English, even if yella makes it a cappella. I still express you, I don't smoke weed or sex. Cause it's known to give a brother brain damage. And brain damage on the mic don't manage nothing but making a sucker in you equal. Don't be another sequel. yourself yay express yourself nwa had a happy song yay isn't that happier yay uh hey guys you're listening to the weekly review usually roman is here couldn't make it today i am subbing in for him to bring you guys the really depressing news that actually made me cry uh wow you guys uh, police brutality is a real thing and the cover-up seems so obvious and then where is the justice if the cover-up seems so obvious 
right? I mean, the dragged body. Go look at the picture. The different gun, not even checking the fingerprints. How can we let these kinds of just, it's it's conflagration of lighted on fire. I'm just, I'm really upset that there's so many. It wasn't just circumstantial evidence. They didn't even look into it. And, and that, that that can happen. The mass injustice. Help, help, I'm bringing oppressed. Look at the violence inherent in the system. Police brutality debate must continue. This is from um, the black and gold, old gold and black, Wake Forest University's student newspaper. Uh, an article published in the Washington Post this past week described how footage from a body camera showed an act of heroism by a police officer. Body cameras have also been used to convict officers deemed to be acting with excessive brutality. We saw the camera on the taser on uh, Mr. Chambers. The cameras seem to be an effective first step toward establishing a better relationship between the police and civilians. Even if this proves to be untrue later, the simple act of actually taking a stand and doing something is a huge step in the right direction. While the debate is no longer at the forefront of media attention, it still remains an unfinished discussion. In the past week, a group of police officers and politicians met in D.C. to continue the debate over body cameras and the issues or solutions they present to police departments, bringing this conflict back to our attention. The issue of police brutality came to light with the events that occurred in Ferguson, Missouri, 14 months ago. With it came further scrutiny of all police practices, including the issue of racial profiling. Coming from the perspective of a white person, it's easy for me to say I have not felt unsafe or afraid of cops, except when I'm doing something illegal like jaywalking. Well, I don't agree with this writer. I'm white, and I, I'm every time I'm afraid. I don't feel like they're going to do something to me, but I feel like I don't feel like they're looking out for my best interest. That's for sure. However, the real, reality is that African Americans do not always feel the same way or LGBTQ people, um, any people of color really, or anyone different from the norm. Uh, Despite the fact that I cannot understand what many others experience, I do know that their voices need to be heard. These are people in our country who feel unsafe and they need to be listened to and respected. Recent movements, especially on social media, have sparked discussions regarding the U.S. turning a deaf ear to the voices of millions. Nevertheless, there is another community whose voices need to be heard as well, those of the actual police officers all across our country. Yes, there have been an alarming alarming number of incidents with police misconduct recently that have gained a great deal of media attention. However, the media does not often cover the ordinary day-to-day heroics of many other police officers that serve and protect us and our families. I mean, he makes a point, not all police are bad, right? There's a lot of people that are actually trying to serve and protect the public. Every day of the year, a police officer can be found risking their lives to save civilians. We need to keep this in mind when we discuss how to proceed from here. The the majority of our cops are simply trying to do their jobs. Although the initial reform movement has perhaps lost some momentum, the subject of police conduct remains relevant. As a nation, we need to be discussing and addressing how best to balance the need of the different parties involved. 
We'll need to find a compromise. There is common ground here. We want to all feel safe. We likely will not find a solution that matches the desires of all the differing opinions, but we can find one that respects the needs of everyone involved. To do so, our nation needs to put aside partisan agendas and actually try to listen to what the other side has to say. Wow. Well, Wake Forest, white student, um, I'm glad we're talking about police brutality. Um, And I do agree with you. I don't think all police people are evil, whatever. But we just read the entire article about an, an entire sheriff's department in Georgia doing a mass cover-up over the murder of a 14-year-old boy. Now, only one cop did it, but all the other cops covered up, and all of them, they're just choosing not to look at the fingerprints to see if they match, to see if he was actually a burglar, or to see if it was another person who claims to do it on Facebook. I mean, what is? it's the system. It's the system as a whole that's the problem. And why do we have to have so many cops? And why are we jailing so many people? And why are we profiling? Yeah, we've got to keep the conversation going for sure. But uh, I don't necessarily agree with what that particular article had to say. You guys are listening to the Weekly Review. I am Pam Benjamin standing in for Roman Reimer. and we're just talking about police brutality today. So here's the body camera stuff that's been talking about. Uh, how body camera manufacturers, of course they are, are cashing in on Michael Brown's Ferguson death. Of course they're cashing in. Let's make money off it. First, we're going to make money by incarcerating people of color and uh, LGBTQ people. And now we're going to cash in on them by uh, having cameras on all our police officers. After a white police officer last year killed a young black man in Ferguson, Missouri, triggering a national protest about police brutality, body camera manufacturer Wolfcam started working on a new live feed technology that would transmit body camera footage from the field to police headquarters. Within months, its sales soared 400%. The benefits are where a commanding officer can not only log in and see the behavior of an officer and see if they're behaving professionally, but also an officer might be in a tense situation and a commanding officer can view that situation and send backup, for example, said Peter Austin Oronig, founder of the California-based company. Or they can look at the footage and hide it. I mean, we saw the footage from the little the boy who was killed and shot in the head there, and uh, it's unbelievable. It, it, I'm on the ground, sir, and and none of that camera footage was being used. Hmm. Of course, they're cashing in. Uh, I lost my article for a minute. Bear with me as the computer box uh, is sad. Uh, you guys are listening to the Weekly Review, usually with Roman. I'm Pam. Today, we're talking about police brutality and now how wolf cam manufacturers of police cams in california are cashing in of course they are of course there's money behind i'm surprised you know what i bet wolf cam is probably a a big uh, part of uh, privatized jails they probably have some money have their fingers in that pot too huh um 
Amid a growing national debate about excessive force and law enforcement transparency, body camera manufacturers are increasingly coming up with new technology aimed at tracking police officers' interactions with the public and, of course, increasing their profits. Their latest body camera models seek to make it easier to record law enforcement by streamlining the camera activation process, protecting the identities of witnesses in sensitive cases, and sharing video evidence, among other features. But civil rights activists urge that despite the technological gains, there are still incentives for police officers to turn off the cameras. Yeah, duh, just turn off the camera. I mean, the camera could just be going all the time, you know, but then I guess you need another person to watch all the film. And do we really have to be watching everybody? Is that how we install integrity in our people is that we have cameras all the the time so that they're scared and they think someone's watching so they'll do the right thing? Doesn't it seem a little bit counterintuitive to trying to have the right people police your state? I mean, if you're going to have a police state, you probably should have people with integrity and thus you don't want them to have integrity. Then give them more cameras and tell them they're being watched so maybe they'll behave right. Why don't we put some cameras in all the classrooms all over so that we can get them used to that? Um, surveillance so that they you know don't feel infringed upon oh man civil rights groups have increasingly argued for widespread uh, use of body cameras following the fatal august 2014 shooting of michael brown an unarmed black teenager in ferguson missouri the white officer who shot brown was not wearing a body camera during the shooting after a grand jury relied on his testimony instead of supplementing it with potential video footage from the scene he was not indicted does everybody remember that? Killed a kid, not indicted. Since that fatal encounter, body cameras have played an important role in other police civilian shootings. The University of Cincinnati police officer charged in the death of motorist Samuel DeBose was wearing a body camera at the time of the shooting in July. And key portions of the shooting were captured on video. The shootings were closely watched in Washington, D.C., and the U.S. Department of Justice announced in May a program that would provide $20 million in funding for dozens of police departments nationally to institute body camera programs. The attention has created a rich marketplace for body camera companies. As of 2013, there were more than 12,000 local police departments in the U.S., and federal funding requires police forces to dig deep in their pockets to help pay for body cameras. The Denver Police Department, for example, says it has wanted to pay law enforcement manufacturer Taser $6.1 million over five years to outfit the force. Taser's Axon body cameras cost between $399 and $599 each. Hey, people with money, you want to invest in something right now? Go to your local stock market and buy body cameras. Wow, stock tips here. Oh, by the way, this is from the International Business Times. So if you guys want to make some money, invest right now in body cameras. Ugh, it, uh, this makes me so sad. Can the cameras record everything? The body camera manufacturers in recent months have sought to create new features to turn cameras on at the right time to catch law enforcement interactions. In older models, many don't stay running so as to preserve battery life. So companies have tried to streamline the activation process and make it easier for officers to have more incentive to do so. Yeah, give them the switch. That's great. Taser recently introduced Bluetooth technology that allows body cameras to automatically turn on in specific situations, such as when an officer draws one of Taser's stun guns or turns on a siren or police lights, which would activate all body cameras on officers within 30 feet. So we got to hear and see the Taser uh, from the boy who was shot in 2011. But 
the taser fell on the ground. So when an officer drives up on a scene and jumps out of a car that needs to get out, uh, out of a car needs to get out, he doesn't want to be fumbling to turn it on, said Steve Tuttle, spokesman for co-founder of the Scottsdale, Arizona body camera manufacturer known for its eponymous stun gun product that many in law enforcement are armed with. And if it gets called into question, they'll say, oh, he didn't turn it on on purpose. Of course, as soon as an officer dons a taser body camera, it immediately starts taking video, but will delete everything but the most previous 30 seconds throughout the day, Tuttle says. That is until an officer hits a button on his camera, which then begins recording both video and sound and stores the 30 seconds of video before the button is pushed. Some body camper companies are also introducing technology that allows them to more easily take out or redact certain images from a body camera video. There are occasions when people caught on body camera need to have their identities concealed, such as domestic abuse calls involving children and meeting with confidential informants and rape victims. Redacting, which has typically been time-consuming, requires going into each frame and blocking out images that need to be redacted. Taser introduced a program in September to make the process faster, with a three-step procedure where the redactor plugs in when they want to start redacting, what they want to redact, and how long they want to redact. So this doesn't make a difference. Let's give them all cameras, but we're all going to give them the ability to take out whatever they want or turn it on whenever they want. That's really going to... Now we're going to create proof that the, they didn't shoot that, that black child who didn't have a gun and it wasn't them and they didn't drag the body. Of course they didn't drag the body. They turned the camera off for that. This is making me really jaded. Uh, and by the way, go buy some Taser stock. Get on e- eBay now. I don't know. Where do you buy stock? Eat trade? Call in. Call in the officers. It's time to buy some stock at E-Trade for taser companies. Editing and storing videos must be done very carefully to maintain the legitimacy to be legally considered evidence. When body camera videos are used in a courtroom, they must essentially be the same as when it was recorded, said John Cusick, Panasonic's product manager for their arbitrator body camera. Yeah, arbitrator body camera. Oh, duh. They must essentially be the same as when it was recorded. Yeah, because otherwise it's tampering with evidence. Basically, we fingerprint that video so that if it were ever tampered with, we could detect that, Cusick said. All the way through court proceedings, we need to know where it's been, who's viewed it, and who's looked at it. Digital Ally, a Lenexa cannabis... Kansas-based body camera manufacturer has also been developing similar technology to recognize a face and block it out through the video continuously. We've done it in phases over the years, said Mark Gordon, technical services manager for Digital Ally. But we're getting into the more technical fun part where we can now create algorithms to match a human's face. Woo, it's the fun part of police brutality. Gordon said his company introduced automatic triggering years ago, which activates body cameras whenever an officer flips the siren switch. The company can also make it so that a body camera will be activated during a vehicle collision. But not all companies are convinced that automatic triggering will work. Cusick of Panasonic was skeptical about the automatic process. Panasonic's body camera has an on switch that Cusick said is very easy to activate, but requires a more deliberate method to stop recording it, making it harder to turn off accidentally. (laughs) 
I'm going to put that in quotes, accidentally, nudge, nudge. There are some technologies that are leaning toward auto-triggering, but the challenge with that is those types of devices aren't always dependable, Cusick said. If it's based on an audible signal, you have to hope it's picked up. Some companies, including Digital Ally and Wolfcom, are also developing technology that would transmit live body camera footage from the field to police headquarters. The upgrades are paying off. Taser has seen a 153% bump in sales this year compared to last, and from the second quarter of 2014 to the second quarter of this year, sales bookings doubled to 30.6 million, Tuttle said. Yeah, Feds boost SA-99 body camera budget by one million Black Lives Matter activist has said. I, not all companies have decided to improve their body cameras because of the recent string of officer-related killings or uh, because of reports linking body cameras to reduced confrontation, Cusick said. Panasonic started developing the second generation of their body camera about a year ago. Cusick said Panasonic simply wanted to create a lighter, more easily wearable camera for the police. Oh, yeah. Panasonic's just simply putting research into creating a, uh, a lighter, more more wearable, more saleable so they can get it to everybody. Ooh, it's the new technology. It's just like, I mean, the iPhone as a camera, maybe... <laughs> Bye, bye, bye. Spend, spend, spend. Hey, we can make money off police brutality, says Panasonic. That was not a quote. That was me. That was Pam Benjamin making a quote, trying to be funny about it. This is a real quote. The reality of it is 99% of officers, uh, excuse me, the reality of it is 99% of an officer's day is spent not documenting incidents, Cusick said. The need around this thing was not spawned by officer shootings. Uh, body camera best practices while body camera companies are trying to improve their tech in one way or another there will always be certain issues with body cameras that seemingly cannot be resolved activists said no matter high tech a body camera is or how clear the video is it is very hard to mimic exactly what the officer sees and how they see it a fact that is that likely will keep the public increasingly dubious of fatal police citizens encounters regarding regardless of the circumstances in a study published in November 2014, found that people filed fewer complaints against police officers when those officers were wearing body cameras, opposed to when they weren't wearing them. Best practices suggest to turn it on at every point when you're talking to a member of the public, says Nancy Lavine, director of the Justice Policy Center of the Urban Institute, a think tank in Washington, D.C., what we learned in our research and conversation with folks in the field is that police forget to turn them on and sometimes forget to turn them off. It offers the possibility of intentional oversight. Oh, intentional oversight. Like we don't think that's happening. Hey guys, uh, one of your favorite NWA song and mine, you knew I wasn't going to hold it back. This is the weekly review. Roman's not here. I'm Pam Benjamin. This is NWA. Fuck the police. Right about now, NWA court is in full effect. Judge Dre residing. In the case of NWA versus the police department, prosecuting attorneys are MC Red, Ice Cube, and Easy Motherfucking E. Order, order, order. Ice Cube, take the motherfucking stand. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help your black ass? You goddamn right. Well, won't you tell everybody what the fuck you gotta say? Fuck the police coming straight from the underground. A young nigga got it bad cause I'm brown. And not the other color, so police think they have. 
money to kill a minority. Fuck that shit, cause I ain't the one for a punk motherfucker with a badge and a gun to be beaten on. And thrown in jail, we can go toe to toe in the middle of a cell. Fucking with me, cause I'm a teenager with a little bit of gold and a pager. Searching my car, looking for the product. Thinking every nigga is selling narcotics. You rather see me in the pen than me and Lorenzo rolling in a benzo. Be the police out of shape, and when I finish, bring the yellow tape. Showing out for the white cop Ice Cube will swarm On any motherfucker in a blue uniform Just cause I'm from the CPT Pump police are afraid of me huh? A young nigga on the warpath And when I finish It's gonna be a bloodbath Of cops dying in LA Yo Dre, I got something to say It's kept in a stash spot for the so-called law. Wishing Ren was a nigga that they never saw. Lights start flashing behind me. But they're scared of a nigga, so they mace me to blind me. But that shit don't work, I just laugh. Because it gives them a hint not to step in my path. For police, I'm saying, fuck you, punk. Read my rights and shit. It's all junk. Pulling out a silly club, so you stand with a fake-ass badge and a gun in your hand. But take off the gun so you can see what's up. Go at it, punk, and I'ma fuck you up Make you think I'ma kick your ass But drop your gat, and red's gonna blast I'm sneaky as fuck when it comes to crime But I'ma smoke them now and not next time Smoke any motherfucker that sweats me Any asshole that threatens me I'ma sniper with a hell of a scope Taking out a cop or two They can't cope with me The motherfucking villain that's mad With potential to get bad as fuck So I'ma turn it around Put in my clip, yo, and this is the sound. Yeah, something like that, but it all depends on the size of the gap. Taking out a police will make my day, but a nigga like Ren don't give a fuck to say. Bob. 
another nigga. And with a gat, it don't matter if he's smaller or bigger. And as y'all know, he's here the rule. Whenever I'm rolling, keep looking in the mirror. And it's on cue, yo, so I can hear a dumb motherfucker with a gun. And if I'm rolling off the eight, he'll be the one that I take out. And then get away while I'm driving off laughing. This is what I'll say. Fuck the police. You've been a redneck, white bread, chicken shit motherfucker. can really lay it down can't he yes nwa fuck the police comes straight from the underground so i am today again i'm wearing a shirt that is a picture of the police on it but not like the police like the police like sting and Stuart copeland and then underneath it in big letters it says fuck nwa i think it's very funny i know that roman likes this shirt for a thousand reasons and uh i wore it today uh, but sadly, he wasn't here. So, hey, I get to take his place and tell you guys the news that is so terrible that sometimes we play music. And isn't that nice? The music makes us feel better and more empowered and ready to face the world again. Uh, this is a this is a great article. Uh, it says why Leroy Moore Jr. has no more time for small talk. Are black special education students a new supply for prisons? This is a very interesting question. Black special education students, are they a a supply for for prisons? When I was a special education teacher back um, before No Child Left Behind, because I got out of teaching because of No Child Left Behind, because I saw it as the systematic culling of critical thought from our education system, you know, that whole chestnut. Uh, But I taught from 97 to 2001, and I taught uh, special education junior high and high school, specifically emotionally disturbed kids. And there was one kid in my class, he came really late. Um, He was 17 years old and he'd been in a bunch of placements and they were trying to find the right placement for him. And they thought that he was perhaps ODD, which is Oppositional oppositional Defiance Disorder, ADHD. Oh, they had so many labels for him. But basically he was a 17-year-old kid who was having a lot of trouble reading. And in my classroom, everybody read out loud whether you were 14 and had a second grade reading level or you were 15 and you had a 22 grade reading level or whether you were 17 and you couldn't read at all. You still had to try and it was a very welcoming and honest and opening place, blah, blah, blah. But he was new and it was his turn. And it wasn't that I, I knew, I mean, he knew, he knows how to read there, but it took him a long time and he was going to find that difficult in a group setting. And, but I still, I wanted to push him to do it because I wanted him to be part of the classroom community and I didn't want to I didn't want to start a divide here that this one particular student doesn't have to do it but everybody else does. So I made the choice. I said, "Yes. If it's it's a sentence, it's a word, you just have to utter a word out loud that's on the page." And he refused, he refused, he refused, and he ended up standing up and throwing a desk at me. So I called the police and he was taken away. And then we had an IEP and I was like, I don't think this is the right placement for him. And I wouldn't be surprised if he was one of these students who 
he ended up in prison. So this is a, a very special article to me because I actually sort of have some background with it. Are, are black special education students a new supply for prisons? Part one. This is by Kathleen, Kathleen Kylie. Um, part one, the problem. When I first met black activist and writer Leroy Moore Jr., I was working on a documentary. I soon came to realize he was not a man who engaged in small talk. He was too busy trying to improve the lives of peoples with disabilities. As a result, Leroy is in perpetual conversation about his activist work. He's hoping that if he keeps his big mouth in gear, a growing mass will listen and come to see the injustices wrought on people with disabilities. Even before police brutality became the center of the news cycle, Leroy was speaking out against it particularly among black special education students. He believes they are the new supply for our prisons. In this Q&A, I talked to him about his concerns and the possible solutions. Leroy is the founder of the Crip Hop Movement, which produces hip-hop music tapes, mixtapes, featuring disabled hip-hop artists from all around the world. That's cute, Crip Hop. He is also one of the founders of the National Black Disability Coalition an author of an upcoming book, The Black Cripple Delivers Poetry and Lyrics. Leroy also publishes various media on the intersection of race and disability, and he's one of the leading voices on police brutality and the wrongful incarceration of people with disabilities. He also lectures around the world on the issues of race, disability, and social injustice. In addition, he's assistant producer on an upcoming documentary, where is Hope, The Art of Murder, a film on police brutality against people with disabilities. Leroy is working with Emmett Thrower, a retired, disabled New York police officer on the film. Thrower is the producer and director. I don't know if you guys saw the video that was on, I actually watched it here with Roman one day, of the police pushing a woman out of her wheelchair and then subduing her on the ground. She was black too but pushing a disabled person out of their wheelchair to subdue them on the ground? What is the, what would be the point of that? They're already subdued in their wheelchair. Like, duh. Ugh. All right, question. You spend most of your time writing and speaking on race, disability, and police brutality. Do you think your efforts are making a difference? Leroy, since I was in grade school, I always wrote about these intersections on the realities of my life, being a black teen with a disability in the 80s. I had to write and speak out because at that time there were no mirrors in my community, and I had to force a reflection or write about it to see my reflection. Today there are more mirrors, so I can see my reflection more and more. However, the social issues that I experienced when I was growing are still present and have gotten worse. We're seeing more police brutality in the black community, and we're seeing it happening among those who are disabled as well. There's a tremendously high rate of incarceration among black men, and this has been well publicized. Going back to the mirror, we're seeing this theme reflected in the Black Lives Matter movement. But what's missing is the awareness of how black youths with disabilities are being arrested and brutalized by the police. There's even a lack of awareness from our own black community. And until recently, there were no national black disability organizations, although the NAACP, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, would sometimes take on these eases of police brutality and other injustice toward black disabled people. But the question should have been, where is the education on disability coming from? Most of the time, it was coming from the National Disability Organization, where the majority of leaders and staff were white. Question. 
Do you have the statistics on the number of young black people with disabilities incarcerated or mainstreamed from schools to prisons? Leroy, special education today has become a new supply for the prison pipeline, especially for people of color. There's an explanation for this. According to the ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union, public schools have embraced zero-tolerance policies that automatically impose severe punishments regardless of the circumstances. As a result of these policies, the rates of suspension have increased from 1.7 million in 1974 to 3.1 million in 2000. The numbers are much higher today. So these harsh disciplinary policies continue to push students into the prison pipeline. We are not targets. The California campaign to expose and eliminate radical racial and identity profiling by law enforcement. And there's a picture of the police brutalizing a person in a wheelchair with a target on it. At least one in three students arrested has a disability, ranging from emotional disabilities such as bipolar to learning disabilities such as dyslexia. Most estimate it's on higher than one in three. According to a recent story in the Washington Monthly, students with emotional disabilities are three times more likely to be arrested before leaving high school than the general population. Question. Can you offer any examples? Leroy, there are numerous examples. There's one high-profile case, and I highlight it because it involved a white student to show how uh, racial... Uh, to show how profiling is happening even among white middle-class students. So you can imagine the ones we don't hear about in poor communities who don't have the resources to defend themselves. The story is about how Jesse Snodgrass, a 17-year-old in 2012 and a high school student, was entrapped by the police. According to a 2014 story in Rolling Stone magazine, an undercover cop targeted him as part of a drug sting. When Jesse was five, a neurologist diagnosed him with Asperger's syndrome, a variant of autism. Over the years, Jesse's diagnosis would expand to include Tourette's, bipolar disorder, and depression, according to Rolling Stone. The article documents how he was lured into a situation, pressured to buy drugs for what he thought was a new friend. Wanting to please his new friend, he agreed, and he did buy a small amount of marijuana, according to the story. Jesse was arrested, and this was the start of his entanglement in the justice system. Fortunately, his parents had the resources to fight back, and they were able to obtain probation and get his life back on track. School-to-prison pipeline. School disciplinary policies disproportionately affect black students. The zero-tolerance discipline has resulted in black students facing disproportionately harsher punishments than white students in public schools. So it's like 51%. Uh, this is public school. Let's see if I can read this. Public school enrollment is 51% white and 16% black and multiple suspensions are 31% white and 42% black. Oof. Uh, 31% uh, black students represent 31% of school-related arrests. Black students are expelled three times more than white students. Students suspended or expelled for discretionary violation are nearly three times more likely to be in contact with the juvenile justice system the following year. It's an ACLU source. While the case of Jesse Snodgrass ended on a positive note, it's not the case with many black students. In a recent story in Huffington Post provides an overview of the racism inherent in special education. 
Daniel Lawson, director of the Center for Civil Rights and Remedies, says in the story, Black lives matter, but even kids who are legitimately identified as having special needs are being kicked out of school right and left, and often for very minor offenses because they're disabled, because they have a disability. Uh, where is the hope? He wrote a, He's writing a book that uh, is called Where is the Hope? we go sorry scrolling down scrolling down where is the hope a documentary about police brutality the film screens and the discussion will take place in san francisco berkeley and oakland from october 17th to 25th so it's coming up you guys this weekend for more information contact leroy moore at crypto nation k-r-i-p crip hop k-r-i-p-h-o-p-n-a-t-i-o-n at gmail.com uh, also visit pbs's fact sheet on the schools to pipeline, schools to prison pipeline. Let's check that out before we uh, say goodbye. We are actually coming up to the end of the weekly review without Roman today. It was just uh, with your substitute, Pam Benjamin. You guys are listening to Mutiny Radio.fm on the corner of 21st in Florida. Uh, today is an amazing day. It marks the first day of a new Friday schedule. Uh, Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse is no longer an open mic. We're going to be having an open mic from 6 to 7.45 called Happy Hour. So we invite you to that. And then Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse is now a much sought after showcase. Yeah. Um, $5 at the door. Everyone gets at least 10 minute sets um, to spread their wings as comedians. And, um, you know, running these open mics, it's so hard. We're just like person, 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 person. So we're changing the schedule. It's going to be really exciting. So we have live entertainment here at the station now from 3 until 11 o'clock every Friday. So from 3 to 6, you can join us for Common Threads Open Mic. It's an everything but comedy open mic. Bring your drums, bring your your music, bring your poetry, bring your thoughts, bring your open heart to Common Thread Collective. Then from 6 to 7.45, we're going to be having Happy Hour, the new comedy open mic. From 8 to 10, it's Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse, a new booked showcase every week featuring the best of San Francisco's underground comedy. And then from 10 to 11 is Ship of Fools, which is another late night open mic for you guys that just can't get enough. Here we go. This is Fact Sheet. How bad is the school to prison pipeline? In these days, it is doubtful that any child may reasonably be expected to succeed in life if he is denied the opportunities of an education. Such an opportunity, where the state has undertaken to provide it, is a right that must be made available on equal terms. That was the Chief of Justice Earl Warren on Brown v. Board of Education 1954, if we all remember. The school-to-prison pipeline, an epidemic that is plaguing schools across the nation, Far too often, students are suspended, expelled, or even arrested for minor offenses that leave visits to the principal's office a thing of the past. Statistics reflect that these policies disproportionately target students of color and those with a history of abuse, neglect, poverty, or learning disabilities. Students who are forced out of school for disruptive behavior are usually sent back to the origin of their angst and unhappiness, their home environment, or their neighborhoods, which are filled with the negative influence. Those who are forced out for smaller offenses have become hardened, confused, and embittered. Those who are unnecessarily forced out of school become stigmatized and fall behind in their studies. Many eventually decide to drop out of school altogether, and many others commit crimes in their communities. 
It is difficult to pinpoint the exact reason for the school-to-prison pipeline. Many attribute it to the zero-tolerance policies that took form after the 1999 Columbine High School massacre. Others blame educators, accusing them of pushing out students who score lower on standardized tests in order to improve the school's overall test scores. And some blame the overzealous policy efforts. The reasonings are many, and the solutions are not as plentiful. Oh, so that whole standardized testing that was put in, that was No Child Left Behind that was brought in uh, by George W. Bush in 2001. Um, of, course it was, this is, of course this is to make our students into prisoners because we can make money off them. So how bad is the school-to-prison pipeline? See the stats for yourself, leave some suggestions, and find programs in your community to help take a stance. This iconic, iconographic, this infographic from Suspension Stories dot com demonstrates an overall general view. Here we go. Are our children being pushed into prison? The pipeline to prison has. The U.S. has the highest incarceration rate in the world, and its prisons and jails are overwhelmingly filled with African Americans and Latinos. The path from prison for young African Americans and Latino men are many, but the starting points are often the school and foster care systems. From school to prison, students of color face harsher discipline and are more likely to be pushed out of school than whites. 40% of students expelled from U.S. schools each year are black. 70% of students involved in in-school arrests or referred to law enforcement are black or Latino. 3.5 times its the black students that are 3.5 times more likely to see suspension than whites. Two times, two times, two times, blacks and Latino students are twice as likely to not graduate high school as whites. And 68% of all males in state and federal prison do not have a high school diploma. It seems pretty damning, doesn't it? Here we go, from foster care to prison. The youth of color are more likely than whites to be placed in foster care system, a breeding ground for the criminal justice system. 50% of children in the foster care system are black or Latino. 30% of foster care youth entering the juvenile justice system are placement-related behavioral cases. 25% of young people leaving foster care will be incarcerated within a few months after turning 18. Ooh, that's sad. 50% of young people leaving foster care will be unemployed within a few years after turning 18. And 70% of inmates in California State Prison are former foster care youth. <sighs> that's insane. Uh, black or Latinos make up 61% of incarcerated populations versus 30% of the U.S. population. 61% of our incarcerated and 30% of our total population. Wow. One out of three African-American males will be incarcerated in his lifetime, and one out of six Latino males will be incarcerated in his lifetime. Hey, guys. How you doing? Listen to the weekly review. Are we depressed yet? Should we play some more music? I think it's time. I think it's time to play some more music, and then you guys should stay tuned for uh, Women's Magazine with Global Val. This has been Pam Benjamin subbing in for Roman Reimer. I think we have enough depressing news for the day. Would you agree? I bet Roman would agree. I'm sorry that I didn't really have anything happy today with uh, the news. 
I'm sorry about that. But the music was fun, wasn't it? Was It was good music. Hey, let's listen to more, some more of Reagan's Polyp, this crazy band from 96 uh, coming out of New York. This song is called Abraham Lincoln, Architect of the Future. You guys have been listening to the Weekly Review. Uh Go download the rest of them. Roman has a great show. I am so honored to have been a part of it. I hope I did it justice, Roman, and chose things that you would have most likely been up in arms about. I only cried once, and I don't think I yelled, but I probably should have. I let NWA do it for me. Uh, Thanks, you guys. Thanks for listening to MutinyRadio.fm. Flying machine, he rides over the fires of the future's face. Porcelain and lace. Heroic visionary, salmon, feedback, canvas, leggings, jumbo size. Expanse of his thighs. His puncher like an angel inside. The barbaric ruins of Atlantis stretch out leather fields of flame that lesser men have made. Use the straps and tie me to the anti gravity clock of the ship. Give me just the tip. Send a row with your concubine Abraham Lincoln, you are the one who brought us Angel dust and beans It passes through your jeans Spirit severe is like an anvil Kiss the floor and feel his fleshy tool Wiping up the drool Lincoln's gonna come in your mouth
Masturbation with Bula D. Williams doll. Hello Kitty chastity belt. Nuclear hail. Here comes the spongy head creamer. A non-dairy delight. Seven Calvin Klein beauties. Three tiny, tiny ladies who shake their culture. The clock behemoth. Truck stop bathroom mirrors splattered with poo. A diaper the size of a bus. A office furniture. XX. A woman with a severed cheap tongue in her leg. Walter Cronkite. Save your pennies for found your fun. A demon haunts a college girl's apartment showing himself only with naked female flesh calls him. Girl summon him. Impressive spirit member. Each enjoys the sexy flesh. Concussion. Try to claw your way out of my heart. Ja, Colette Concussion. 
I get a little horny and I want a little funky Give me something back I won't make fun of it Roll around without a mind and try to pretend It won't make any difference Make the pleasure face, make the kiss The lips look so real no one can tell That you're still thinking And when it's all over you I can roll around in the slip Hunt butter, hunt butter Like you're clean and you smell like you're shaving Climb up on the cigarette and make it like a monkey You pump your funky hips until the hunch starts jumping And lap it up like a dog It's all over your chin and everything I can tell you like it, I like it too I like it on my neck and chest Tell me what food relieves insomnia, anxiety, stress, chronic brain, depression, nausea, and can induce euphoria and stimulate appetite? I'm going to guess waffles. <laughs> that is incorrect. <laughs> Actually, Alex, the 